Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. All right, now I'm going to talk briefly about the sponsors that make this podcast possible. And keep in mind that all the money from these sponsors goes towards hiring outdoor journalism interns. This year, we've hired three interns and paid them $15 per hour. And over the course of this podcast, we've hired seven different interns, not only helping us report on Oregon's outdoors, but also teaching young college students journalistic skills that they can carry forward. Plus, it's a pretty fun internship anyway. They get to travel outdoors, report about the environment. It's a good gig, and these sponsors make it possible. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we get rolling. So this part you'll recognize. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast, which reminds you that winter safety is paramount, especially during the king tides and heavy rains that characterize this season. King tides result from the gravitational pull of the moon and sun and can cause exceptionally high tides that flood coastal areas at specific moments. Stay informed, heed warnings, and be prepared for rapidly changing conditions to ensure winter safety on the Oregon coast. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're rounding up some of the biggest news stories from the past month. We've got news on incoming snow, Mount Hood permits, a muddy water disaster, and an Oregon coast trail that has become the very definition of a hidden gem. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, in this episode, we are going to include kind of a grab bag of big news and recreation stories from this past month that should still be interesting right now as I record during this bleak time of the year that is late November and early December. This time of year is pretty rough on everybody, I think, because it's dark, it's cold, we don't really have snow in the mountains yet, and it's just not the best time for those of us who love the outdoors, unless you're headed out to get a Christmas tree, which is always a lot of fun. Despite that, or maybe because of it, I've had a ton of pretty interesting and sometimes controversial news stories that I'm going to talk about in this kind of newsletter-style roundup of the biggest stuff I've been covering. 
As a reminder, if you want to get on the newsletter list, I send out the Explore Oregon newsletter about once every month, sometimes twice a month. It kind of depends on how much free time I've got. But uh, if you want to get on the list, all you got to do is email me at the Statesman Journal email address. It's just Z or Ness at statesmanjournal.com. I'll get you on there and I send this list out with everything that we report here in the department, me and the interns. As most listeners probably know by now, I have a pretty broad beat that covers a little bit of everything related to the outdoors, the environment, public lands, and that's definitely going to be reflected in this podcast. So rather than just teasing it, let's jump into the stories and we'll start with some pretty wild weather that is coming our way. All right, so I'm going to start off with mountain snow and what is actually breaking news for me, because as I was recording this podcast, this actually came across. So it'll probably be a little old for you, but it's new for me. So to keep it simple, we're expecting around one to three feet of snow in the Cascade Mountains from Thursday through Saturday. And based on that forecast, Mount Bachelor Ski Area is actually announcing that they are going to open conditions permitting on Saturday. Now, conditions permitting is a pretty big caveat, but I'd say they're pretty safe based on the forecast. I also wouldn't be surprised if Mount Hood Meadow and Timberline had similar announcements. Those three are the largest and highest elevation ski areas, and they tend to open first. Lower elevation ski areas like like Hoodoo, Willamette Pass, Mount Hood Ski Bowl tend to open a little bit later. So all this is very good news because so far this year, snowfall has been quite pathetic. And of course, we've talked on this podcast about fears that this year's El Nino was going to bring a crummy ski year. This is one of those storms that could really help. But I do have to warn listeners that, you know, this snow is expected to be followed up with some warm rain, like kind of a pineapple express that does have a reputation for melting a bunch of snow. So we might end up getting like three feet of snow and then it melts half of it. You know, it's it's right in that range where the Pacific is bringing in this moisture. It's kind of right on the line because it's not super cold. It should be cold enough, but there's a chance this could be a total bust and come as just rain. There's a chance that this, this could be stay colder than expected and be great, bring three to five feet of snow into the Cascades. But given this is an El Nino year, I'd say this is an important storm to see if it delivers because if we can get that snowpack rolling get in a good shape you know it's just better odds that we're going to have a good snow year and some of this this early season snow often comes with these big atmospheric rivers and that's what we're experiencing now so just keep your fingers crossed over the next five to seven days to see what it delivers One other interesting ski note that I'm following, but this isn't like a full story, is that Willamette Pass, uh, which was purchased by a pretty big company last year, has started doing a lot of snowmaking up at the resort. And that's a new thing for them this year. So So I'm pretty curious to see how it works out for them if this snowmaking has a big impact in terms of when they can open and how long they can stay open. Because that's a big deal for those lower elevation ski areas like Hoodoo and Willamette. During El Nino seasons, if it's a little bit warmer, it it has a bigger impact on those lower elevation resorts compared to like Timberline's pretty high, Bachelor's pretty high. They're usually fine, even in crummy snow years. 
Hoodoo and Willamette have historically had trouble. But if Willamette is making its own snow, that could be kind of a game changer for them. So that is something I am following. All right, our second story here is one that I've been working on for most of the past two or three weeks. It's become a pretty big story on the statewide level, and it's a little complicated, but also not really. So let's start here. In the South Saniam, the Middle Fork Willamette, and the Mainstem Willamette Rivers, if you happen to look at the water this past month, you might have noticed that it was really muddy. In some cases, like up the South Saniam River, it was historically muddy by a factor of like 10. People have compared it to pudding or chocolate milk. And it wasn't just like one or two days after a big rainstorm, which does definitely happen. This has lasted every day since mid-October in some places. And up the Middle Fork Willamette, this has been in play since late August and September. Now this has had a big impact on the drinking water supply of towns, including Sweet Home, Lebanon, and Lowell. Their drinking water systems are not prepared for this level of muddiness, which is also known as turbidity. So they've needed to use extra chemicals, extra filters to keep water safe for their populations to drink. But in doing that, so many of these towns have said their drinking water has turned pretty gross. It smells bad. It's turned ground. People are drinking bottled water. Like it's a legitimate crisis. And the public works departments have had to pick up a lot of extra effort, a lot of extra money and it's just been tough on them. And so this has been a crisis. Oregon's delegation and its governor all say they're looking for a solution. But you'll notice that I haven't explained exactly what's going on here because it's a little complicated. So how did it happen? The answer might surprise you. The crisis has been caused by what's called a drawdown of two reservoirs. The first is Green Peter near Sweet Home, and the second is Lookout Point near Lowell. They're being taken down lower than they have ever been before, basically transforming the reservoirs back into rivers. And when they've done, they've done that, all the sediment that's built up over the decades since the dams were built is being flushed out at once. Now, why are the reservoirs being lowered? The reason is they're being brought down because a federal judge determined that they needed to do this as a way to help endangered spring Chinook salmon to migrate through the dams. So we've talked about in other podcasts, there is a major effort underway to restore salmon runs in the upper Willamette Basin before they go extinct, which is a real possibility. That means getting salmon into the best spawning habitat above the dams by taking them above the dams in trucks, then letting them spawn in the upper rivers, and then having the baby fish migrate downstream. The problem is baby salmon really struggle to make it through these gigantic dams that are on the tributaries of the Willamette River. Like the reservoirs are just too deep. The baby salmon can't migrate down and found, find the correct outlets in the dam to keep going down to the ocean and continue that life cycle. And so three environmental groups brought a lawsuit demanding action. And a judge ordered the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to drop those reservoirs so the baby salmon could get through from those upper rivers through the dams, back to the ocean. We'll see if it works, but in doing this, there have been some pretty severe impacts to the drinking water of the town, but also to resident fish. 
The drawdowns of the dams actually killed tens of thousands of kokanee salmon that lived in Green Peter Reservoir by sort of spitting them through the dams and giving them the bends. Their insides just puffed up because they were going from really deep parts of the reservoir into the shallow of the river almost instantly. So residents in Sweet Home, who normally have the best drinking water in the state, with great places to fish and boat in their backyard, have watched kind of in horror as this has all happened. Here's a little bit from an interview I did with the Sweet Home Mayor, Susan Coleman, where she's speaking about how the town has felt about this happening. How has it impacted the community overall? Um, they're pretty, pretty upset and bothered by it. The, water, the drinking water thing, I think, is the most disturbing for them mm -hmm. um, and surprising when their water turns green or brown. Um, and that, that's been, I think, the most disturbing. The fishing impact is, is a really is an impact that's going to be felt for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think people are most passionate about the fishing. Yeah. And yeah. the recreation part, because we all have noticed that not as many people are coming to town yeah. to recreate on the water. And we aren't going out. Like, none of us yeah. own kayaks or whatever we're going to go out. We're not going into that. Yeah. It's too muddy. And my daughter went out. Um, so what, on the Saturday, we're, the weekend where all the fish were yeah, thousands of fish died. My daughter went mm -hmm. out to foster mm -hmm. on the Monday, and it was so bad. It was just too many dead fish, and then the smell afterwards. Nobody's going to be going out there to recreate. Now, the environmental groups that caused this to happen have said they stand with the town. They said this is one bad year, that the turbidity will get better in the future, although it's unclear exactly what's going to happen in future years. And basically, they've just said, they said this is basically just necessary to save Spring Chinook on the brink of extinction. And then if we get this right, if we get it to the point where we can get salmon above the dams and then their baby fish back down, the salmon runs will be restored, they'll flourish, and that will be great for the economies of these small towns. So this is short-term pain for long-term gain. But in the meantime, state and federal lawmakers and the environmental groups are looking for funding to help the towns deal with their water crisis. But at this point, nobody seems to have a good answer, and that includes Oregon Governor Tina Kotek, who, when asked about it yesterday, basically said, right now, we don't have a solution. The muddy water should start to decline in mid-December as they start refilling the reservoir. But this has been a huge deal, and it's definitely another strain on that Oregon-urban-rural divide. And it's just not clear what's going to happen in future years. All right, up next, I'm going to switch gears. So at the beginning of next year, you are going to need a $20 permit or a $50 annual permit to climb above 9,500 feet on Mount Hood. So this is for people that are putting on their crampons, their ice axe, getting ready and going to the summit on that technical glacier climb. Typically, sometimes in the winter, but typically in the late spring or early summer. Now, this permit system has been in the works for quite a while because of the number of people climbing Mount Hood has increased dramatically, which has caused an increase in accidents and rescues. Now, with the permit system, there would be an unlimited number of permits available. So this isn't the type of limited entry system we've seen elsewhere on Oregon's public lands. The reasons for the permit are twofold. First, the money would go towards hiring climbing rangers to help people stay safe. 
It also give climbers waste bags to reduce the amount of human waste that has been growing on the mountain. In addition, it would create a situation where instead of just showing up at timberline and starting to climb, which people can basically do now, it forces people with little experience to go through this system where they have to get the permits, they have to look at what's involved in the climb and kind of sign off on that. So it sort of forces them into understanding how big an undertaking this is. And third, it gives the Forest Service the tools to gather data on the number of people actually climbing hood. So the Forest Service has noted that at this point, most of the major Cascade peaks like St. Helens, Adams, Rainier, and even South Sister have some sort of permit system in place. Not everyone is happy, obviously, but as we've talked about at length on this podcast, the skyrocketing number of people outdoors has just led to more of these types of systems, whether to limit damage to sensitive alpine environments or to try to keep more people safe. This is just another example of that. And again, it's going to be starting on January 1st, 2024. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, I'll talk about a very cool trip and a complex issue for one of the most beautiful spots on the Oregon coast. We'll also have a story about new fees and cool new places to rent in the forest, new rules for drones, and an unburned waterfall that has inexplicably remained closed. So. That's when we return. I'm Tiffany Roddy with Roseburg Forest Products. As a professional forester, I was drawn to Oregon by the trees and the vastness of Oregon's majestic outdoors. I'm proud to work for a family-owned, fully integrated wood products company with a deep commitment to our industry and our communities. Roseburg's sustainably managed timberlands are open for recreation and provide natural wood products that help make people's lives better from the ground up. We are proud members of AFRC, sponsor of the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Tillamook Coast welcomes you for local coastal adventures. And while we invite you to explore the natural beauty of Oregon's coast during the winter season, we also advise you to be aware of winter weather and plan for it. You may picture yourself hiking through lush forests, beachcombing along rocky shores, or discovering tide pools teeming with life. Yes, the Tillamook Coast offers a unique playground for outdoor enthusiasts and nature lovers alike. But nature's power is undeniable, especially during king tides and heavy rains. Stay safe by checking tide schedules and monitoring coastal flood warnings. Always keep an eye on weather forecasts and road conditions. Remember to pack essentials like water, flashlights, and warm clothing. If you plan to hike, avoid areas prone to landslides during or after heavy rainfall. Explore our region's winter wonders, but do so with safety in mind and a deep respect for the forces of nature. To learn more about winter weather on the Tillamook Coast, visit TillamookCoast.com and plan your unforgettable winter journey. All right, welcome back. Okay, so until about two years ago, one of the most popular roads to access some really beautiful hikes on the Oregon coast was just north of Lincoln City. 
It was Forest Service Road 1861, and it headed up into the high elevations of Cascade Head, a famous biosphere reserve of stunning views and old growth forest. From this road, you could access two pretty famous hikes, including the upper end of the Cascade Head Trail, and then maybe even the more famous Hearts Cove Trail, which brings you down into an incredible grassy meadow above the ocean with a view of a turquoise cove and a waterfall dropping into it. I know that sounds over the top in describing that spot, but the meadows of Hearts Cove are second to none, in my opinion. I think it's probably my favorite single spot on the coast. But there is a problem. In December of 2021, there was a massive landslide on the road pretty close to its junction with Highway 101. The landslide was so big, the Forest Service basically said, we can't fix this short term. So it's been closed to cars, but has stayed open to hikers and bikers ever since. Now, I reported on this story in two ways. So first, in the newsy way, the Forest Service is planning surveys for the road in a project that will determine whether they're able to reopen it or not. If they were able to open it, it would take probably a couple years, millions of dollars. It would be a big undertaking if they want to restore it to vehicle access. If they're not able to do that or they decide it's not worth it, the road would very likely be turned into a trail system. The Forest Service is actually taking comments on what people want to see right now. So check out a story that I reported and you can see how to submit comments, get your thoughts on the record for this situation. The other way I covered this is just by taking my bike out, riding the road, and then hiking Hearts Cove. I'd done this when the road was open, maybe 10 years ago, and I've been up, I had been up on the road a lot when it was open. It was actually a very busy road. Like these were really popular hikes, and there was a ton of people up there. So it was pretty strange now to go back, you know, with my bike on a perfectly sunny day and just be out there and there's just nobody. So the entire trip you know, biking this road, hiking Hearts Cove Trail, and then coming back was about 14 miles total with about 3,000 feet of climb. It was a pretty big trip. And not only that, because the area hasn't had any maintenance, there were down trees all over the place, which made it pretty challenging. Like, I wouldn't recommend this trip for, you know, a kid or an adult that is not in, you know, decent shape because it's a challenge. I was pretty tired by the end of this one, and it took most of the day. But overall, it had a much more wilderness feel to it, which is a pretty rare experience on the coast. Normally, when you're on the coast, you can see Highway 101 over there or, you know, some tourists over there. Like there isn't a lot of places that feel wilderness like. And this is definitely the feeling that I got being out on Cascade Head beyond the landslide. And again, look, there's just no more beautiful place on the coast or very few than Hearts Cove Trail. So what's going to happen here really comes down to these two options. Either spend a lot of money to restore the road to cars, which would lead to far greater access, more people getting outdoors, and all of that good stuff. Or it would mean turning the road into that wilderness-like hiking trail where maybe it's a greater challenge and far fewer people are going to go, but it's also this unique experience that doesn't exist very many places on the coast, and it might do a better job of, of protecting an area that is known the world over as an, an ecosphere reserve of rare plants and animals. And maybe you're protecting them a little bit by limiting the number of visitors just because it's a harder trip. So that's the situation at Cascade Head, again, which is north of Lincoln City, if you are not familiar with it.
I've got a full story on both sides of the things I just talked about, including uh, a more detailed breakdown of the adventure to Hart's Cove on the on the road beyond the landslide. And so that's going to be in the Sunday edition of the Statesman Journal, and it'll probably be online sooner. All right, up next, I've got a weird story about a pretty well-loved waterfall hike and campground that did not burn in the 2020 Labor Day fires, yet has been closed for three years since the fires, again, even though it didn't burn. So what's going on here? This is Butte Creek Falls, just outside Scott's Mills, and it's a really cool area with multiple waterfalls, an easy hike, and a campground in State Forest. In 2020, the Beachy Creek Fire almost reached it, but didn't. There's actually a big story, you know, about how it didn't burn. We, we got pictures of firefighters smiling and standing in front of the waterfalls because everyone was happy that it wasn't torched. The problem was the roads around it were torched. And so the Oregon Department of Forestry decided the roads needed to be cleared of hazard trees or fire killed trees that might fall on your car before they would reopen the road and thus the trail could be reached. They contracted the work out to Hampton Lumber. But Hampton's subcontractors have missed deadline after deadline for finishing this work. I reached out to their spokesperson and she told me that a lack of contractor availability combined with bad weather and challenging conditions on the ground delayed completion of the project. So it's kind of a difficult situation. They do anticipate Butte Creek Falls reopening in the late spring, maybe in the summer, but we'll have to see. We, I've heard this before. It was going to open, you know, in the fall and then it didn't. It's an odd situation because almost all the public land closed by the 2020 fires has reopened. Like you can even walk through the fire scars pretty much everywhere. This is one of the few places that hasn't reopened since the fires and it was never burned. So go figure. All right, this next story is also a pet project of mine, and that has been looking at how Oregon is gonna manage drones over the coming years. Last month, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department released some proposed rules governing where you could launch a drone and fly and where that activity would be prohibited. So drones have been an issue for parks and the Oregon coast for a number of reasons, including their impacts on other recreational users, their impact on wildlife, in particular shorebirds, and other issues as well. I've reported on this a decent bit, but there have been cases where drones like smashed into the rocks above rock climbers at Smith Rocks and like almost fell on the rock climbers. Um, There's a case where a drone showed up at a nude beach at Rooster Rock with a little camera on it. And obviously people weren't thrilled about that. And there's just no shortage of people bothered by the that overhead buzzing sound. Like you can feel when a drone is flying over you, you can hear that sound. It feels invasive. A lot of people don't like them, but they're also a huge part of, you know, people taking footage of commercial video. Like it's, it's a tool that you need to have. I'm actually a commercially licensed drone pilot because I sometimes do that work for the Statesman Journal. The fix is that the agency is proposing creating maps for every Oregon state park and coastal beach using color coding to show where launching a drone is open, which would be in green, prohibited in red or conditional, meaning it's allowed with a permit. So the idea is they would map all of this land and give people the idea of, 
is it okay to launch a drone here or is it not? The idea I think is to keep people away from these areas where they could do the most harm. Right now, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is taking public comments on their proposed rules. So if you feel strongly about it, uh, you can submit a comment and get your thoughts on the record. All right, we're gonna finish up with kind of a lightning round of smaller but still interesting stories that we've published or that I am gonna write soon. The first one is Willamette National Forest is planning to increase fees for camping. Typically, you know, two to four dollars. Nobody likes it, but this is pretty normal. It happens, kind of goes with inflation. To help ease the blow, though, as they announced these fee increases, they also announced two new forest cabin rentals, which are always really cool. These, you know, historic cabins, lookouts out in the forest that you can rent from recreation.go. I'm just a sucker for those. And so in coming years, they have said that you'll be able to rent the Marion Forks Guard Station, which is up in the Mount Jefferson area, and the Gold Lake Cabin near Willamette Pass. Now, I know it's the Forest Service distracting me from the fees with these fun new places to stay, but all I can say is well played, Forest Service, well played. Also, there's a new winter lookout that was recently reopened at Mount Hood National Forest called Flag Point Lookout. Now, this is a winter lookout which requires you to ski about 10 miles one way during the winter to stay in this lookout tower, but it's got a huge view of Mount Hood. It's a very cool experience, and so they just reopened that. Last I checked, it was already mostly booked out for the season, which happens. People love staying at these fire lookouts, but I've said in the past, when you're renting these lookouts, you just, just check recreation.gov like every day in your spare time, when you're just bored, when you're just sitting around, you'll eventually find some openings. Okay, so another real quick one. I'm planning a story on two fishing-related things, one that's kind of negative and one that is more positive. So the happy story here is that coho salmon numbers are historically high this year in the Willamette Basin. Now, what's funny is that coho are not even native to the upper Willamette. It was actually spring Chinook salmon and winter steelhead that historically could get over Willamette Falls because the water was high and they established a native historic population in that upper basin. But at some point, coho salmon were introduced. Now, there's some pretty wild stories about how that happens. However it happens, they're doing really well right now. And it's kind of a bright spot for anglers because you are allowed to bring them home and eat them for dinner. And look, coho salmon, it's delicious. So technically, they're not native, but it's still become a pretty viable and pretty cool uh, fishery in the upper basin. So that's the positive fish story. The, the negative fish story is that Walling Pond, a uh, popular place to fish in southeast Salem, has been briefly shut down. It's on private property where anglers have been allowed to fish for almost a century, and ODFW has always stocked it with trout. But the homeless issue has become too great here, according to the family that owns the land. And so they're shutting down the parking lot and stopping the stocking program for six months to reassess the situation. Anglers can still walk in and fish if they want, but who knows how good the fishing is going to be without the stocking program. Okay, let's wrap up with some endangered species news. So just today, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service formally listed the wolverine population in the lower 48 as threatened. Oregon does have a population of wolverines, primarily in the Wallowa Mountains of the northeast part of the state. But recently, they've been spotted at Santiam Pass in the Mount Jefferson area and even along the Columbia River near Portland. So when they were spotted, it was a pretty 
pretty surprising thing uh, just because it was so rare. So they have been listed as threatened just because of the decline in their overall population. On the swing side of that, a pink perennial flower native to the Pacific Northwest is no longer considered threatened or endangered. And that is the Nelson's Checkermellow. That's a prairie herb native to the Willamette Valley and Coast Range. And it has been delisted after a bunch of agencies, a bunch of groups work to establish new populations, meaning it's no longer endangered. It's been taken off the list. Okay, so on that positive note, that's all the news I've got for you this time around. As ever, you can find out a lot more information, probably explained in a more coherent manner by checking out thestatesmanjournal.com and getting a subscription to support our reporting. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.